Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Opening statements began earlier this week on a lawsuit against House Bill 1775, the so-called critical race theory ban, removes mandatory gender and sexual diversity training for higher education and bans teaching in K-12 schools about the idea of ra- racial superiority or making a student feel uncomfortable about their race or sex. Ryan, what are opponents saying against this measure? Well, the opponents' arguments uh, against the measure are really I, and we've talked about this at the, at the very outset of this uh, this lawsuit. The lawsuit claims that there is no way whatsoever that the state can interpret and enforce this law uh, that is constitutional. And I think that their strongest argument to that has to do with the the vagueness of the language uh, that the, that the law is made up of. And so that kind of a law is called a facial challenge. Whenever you've got a, a challenge like that, because what you're essentially asking a court to say is that there is no way that there's that this could ever be found or read to be constitutional that's different than an as applied challenge an as applied challenge would be to challenge a particular enforcement of uh of the application of this law and the judge really seemed to focus on that as did the state's attorneys as well an interesting turn of events is that the state's attorneys seem to indicate that an as applied challenge uh against say the state of oklahoma for its enforcement of 1775 against Tulsa Public Schools with regard to its accreditation status, that that would likely be a successful challenge. And that's something that a couple of years ago when this was first filed that we talked about, that the burden that plaintiffs have to meet, that petitioners have to meet in a case like this uh, for a facial challenge to declare the, the whole law unconstitutional in every instance is a very high burden. And as applied challenge is a, is a much more, uh, it's, it's a lower burden. Um, and so the, the state in this as applied challenge, they seem to indicate that if they, if that had happened, that the state would lose, uh, in that instance. But there are a lot of things that, that could happen here. The court, uh, doesn't seem to the judge, we have a federal judge that doesn't seem to uh, be approaching this with a lot of urgency. It's taken over two years to even get to oral arguments. I think that that may be an indication of where the judge sees the particular, uh, damages, uh, or injury to the petitioners in this case. Um, so I, I don't know that we'll see something soon, but it could be, you know, uh, a whole host of options that the judge could uh, put in front of the, uh, the litigants here. Neva. I think you're right. And Ryan's exactly right. I mean, in terms of what the judge ultimately will do, but kind of looking at these opening arguments and, and what took place, I thought it was interesting reading some of the judge's comments uh, and questions. I mean, he basically uh, uh, asked the defense about uh, wording um, the wording of, quote, uh, requirement or presents. He talked about, uh, you know, why not use language that was more definitive, uh, such as endorse or promote. So, uh, and he went on to give a whole string of, at one point, hypothetical situations for the defense to answer. And so it, it, it 
it will be interesting to see, as you say, Ryan, will this drag on or, you know, what option will the uh, uh, will this uh, uh, judge eventually take? But he could issue a preliminary injunction. You know, um, he could um, uh, he could strike down certain parts of the law, uh, keeping others, you know, basically giving a more narrow construction of uh, of uh, the meaning of the statute and clarifying language, or he could even send uh, the case or parts of it to the Oklahoma State Supreme Court to weigh in on. So um, it will watch with, I think, a great deal of interest because uh, there's no clear path at this point as to how this will move. But uh, it's something, as you say, we've been waiting two years uh, since this was filed to start to get some resolution. And there's there's no there's nothing that would stop litigants in, uh, that are opposed House Bill 1775 from bringing an as applied challenge right now. Uh, so there, there could be there seemed to be an invitation from the judge because he, these hypotheticals that he was asking, those hypotheticals are best suited for an as applied challenge. And that to me seems to you know signal to everyone and even the state attorney general's uh, solicitor general in their arguments uh, conceding that the state could possibly lose or would probably lose an as-applied challenge in some of these hypotheticals uh, or actual instances that have happened, that seems to be an invitation to litigants to say, all right, well, you may proceed down this facial challenge track, but there's a lot of uncertainty. But if you want to really attack this law, filing an as-applied challenge seems to be something uh, that would provide a more immediate result, if, if, not the to- uh, if not the total victory that litigants are seeking, the petitioners are seeking, I should say. The State Tax Commission is now taking applications for a controversial private school tax credit program. It was supposed to start last Friday, but got delayed after logistical issues. The tax credits range from $5,000 to $7,500 per child. The cap for the credits is $150 million. Neva, do you expect a lot of Oklahomans to take advantage of this? Well, I think uh, I, I think people will watch with interest what the... Uh, um, what the numbers are in this first round. I mean, uh, we have a situation where the governor, when he signed the Parental uh, Choice Tax Credit Act earlier this year, it, uh, the stage was set. This is something that uh, people have, uh, that have been uh, advocates of this for many years were glad to see become a reality. Now with it in place, I think uh, it will be interesting. There's a sliding scale uh, with the, obviously in, in this first round, priority being given, consideration being given to those uh, families making less than 150000 annually, but it does go up, uh, go up uh, uh, substantially beyond that. Um, I think the first $150 million in this first year, uh, we'll see how quickly that's used. Uh, there's this priority uh, time frame, and then it will be uh, kind of first come, first serve after that. Um, I, the interesting twist in all of this from the from the kind of media standpoint this week was that the governor last week had been asked uh, if he intended to submit an application and indicated that, uh, in fact, his wife uh, was going to submit an application. Three of their children, I believe, are in private school uh, right now, and then did an about face this week, uh, basically reversing that, uh, saying that that he that they would not apply for the new tax credits uh, and uh, make that money uh, available to others that uh, would uh, would qualify. So, 
I think um, it's a new program. Obviously, there's a lot of, uh, from the tax commission standpoint, and those that will be overseeing and administering this, there are a lot of details that are kind of being worked out, I'm certain, as, as it moves along through this first process. But lawmakers, no doubt, will be very interested as they come back into session to see what the numbers are, what the interest is, and what's actually taking place with making this program a reality. Ryan. Well, and Representative Jason Rosecrans out of Norman said that the governor's uh, first statement that he was going to be making an application for this tax credit and then later walking it back was just really demonstrated how flawed this law was and how it really is skewed to help the wealthiest Oklahomans. You know, the governor said that, you know, he makes $147,000 a year as governor and he needs all the help that he can get. I think that for a lot of Oklahomans, that just does not that just rings very hollow and and, uh, you know, is is counter is just contrary to their actual experience. The the median income for families in Oklahoma right now is around fifty seven thousand dollars. And it's much lower than that in many rural parts of the state um, and and lower income parts of the state where that median income drops well below that uh, those numbers. So for a lot of Oklahoma families out there, the idea that $147,000 is just barely making it uh, is is a real slap in the face. The other part of that is that income itself, you know, just shows that income itself is not a real great indicator of actual wealth. Uh, The governor may make $147,000 a year as governor, uh, but the governor is a self-made millionaire. Uh, he has you know, millions of dollars that he has made uh, through his private business dealings well before he became governor. Presumably, he still has millions of dollars uh, to, his, to his name and uh, that he's able to access. You know, so just because he's only making 100, and I say only uh, you know, very loosely there, making $147,000 a year right now is not really an indicator of the kind of wealth and the ability that he has to pay for his own children's education, uh, private uh, or private school education. So... You know, again, I think that this really will, um, throughout this entire process, will demonstrate that the people that are benefiting the most from this are the people that are already able to afford their send their children to private school, uh, and they're going to get a benefit in their taxes. And the folks that can't afford to send their kids to private school or don't even have private school as an option in their area um, are going to not be able to take advantage of this. So. Um, Again, I think the governor putting that out there and then walking it back, as Representative Rosecrans said, really demonstrates just, you know, who's going to benefit from this law and who's not. Well, I think it's important to note, though, that any Oklahoma family certainly can uh, make an application. And in this 60 day priority window that's going on right now that ends February 5th, they can they can apply for funds. For instance, families earning, I think it's less than seventy five thousand dollars. They're eligible for the highest tax credit per child, which is seventy five hundred. So, uh, and that scale slides down to uh, uh, the folks that are in the two hundred fifty thousand plus income bracket. Their eligibility per child would only be five thousand. So, it's something that any parent, any uh, uh, Oklahoma family can look at uh, with respect to an option, uh, school option for their children, and I think. Uh, the information is uh, readily available. Uh, the, the website parentalchoice.ok.gov outlines this in great detail, as well as the application process. So again, it will it's it's something that uh, across Oklahoma and lawmakers uh, uh, were resounding in their um, belief that this was this was an education option that Oklahoma 
parents should be given. And now we'll see how it rolls out and what the interest level is and um, and see how it moves forward, because this is just the first year. Next year, I think the increase is uh, or it goes up uh, eventually to about two hundred and fifty million dollars by 2026. So this is a substantial amount of money that will afford many families an option uh, if they choose to go this direction. The State Board of Education met last week when, on, with several items on the agenda, and we start with Tulsa Public Schools. Board members urged the district to close low-performing schools and voted on several more requirements. They also ordered a deadline for TPS to meet with the Department of Education over the district's finances. This comes after a recent high-profile embezzlement case. Ryan, what do you think of this new attention on Tulsa Schools? Well, it's, I guess, you know, new and continued attention. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, we have an interim superintendent there. The uh, the former superintendent, Deborah Gist, had stepped down, I think, as an effort to try to create a clear path for Tulsa Public Schools to move forward with the current administration uh, at the Department of Education under Ryan Walters. Um, and But we, we can still continue to see uh, Ryan Walters waging this war against Tulsa Public Schools. And a lot of it, uh, to no surprise, is based on... Uh, you know, yeah, I think in some instances just outright lies about the relationship between the Department of Education and Tulsa Public Schools. And then the other, just a bunch of, you know, uh, talking out of the side of your mouth because the uh, superintendent is saying, Superintendent Walters is saying, well, we are going to be closing these public schools. Uh, you know, we should be closing, you know, this school or this school site. And we want to see these closures. But the superintendent's not doing anything to demonstrate to the Tulsa Public Schools what they would get. You know, what kind of state support are, is, is he offering? Uh, you know, how is the state going to help these schools with these decisions? How are they going to help, you know, with the added burden to other school sites whenever students have to get transferred there? There's, there's no offer of help. There's no plan here. That shouldn't surprise anyone. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, we're talking about something that is fundamentally a question of local control. The decision of whether or not a particular school district is going to close a school site is, in almost all instances, a decision for the local school board. And uh, the idea that this uh, this guy that claims to be this you know super conservative uh, is usurping the power of local governments and putting it in the hand of a larger government authority uh, that is out of the direct co- uh, control of local voters that vote on these local school board members that ultimately then hire the superintendent and the staff and everything else. You know, that that to me seems like this this big government plan that uh, is really hypocrisy. Out of them. And then finally, the, the fact that they are alleging that Tulsa Public Schools is have uh, have avoided having a meeting on financials uh, within Tulsa Public Schools is just contradicted by the record. Uh, you know, they, I, you know, I don't know whether to be angry at the general counsel for the Department of Education or feel sorry for him that he wasn't given the information. I, I just don't know because otherwise, I don't know if he just stood up and just outright lied or was told something else by his superiors and reported it. But it's just not true. Tulsa Public Schools set a date to meet with the State Department of Education. The State Department of Education set uh, gave them gave a an extension. And then the state has not ever set a new date, even though the Tulsa Public Schools have requested a new date. So there's, uh, again, you know, no no surprise coming out of the Ryan Walters administration that uh, we're continuing to see lies and platitudes without any sort of real plan. Neva, well, there's no there's no question 
that Superintendent Walters is not going to let up on this. I mean, it's clear uh, he's intractable. The board is unanimous in support of his position on this. And so uh, the pressure is on both sides. But in in the instance of Tulsa Public Schools, uh, there's no question. They're going to have to take a hard look at what's going on in their school district. And they're going to have to demonstrate some the some tangible improvements and very quickly. And I think this pressure will be added by the fact, as we all know, if you're talking about school closures, if you're talking about consolidating uh, schools or anything of that nature, we're now moving into the second half of a school year and the clock is ticking in terms of being able to just logistically um, move through the process and make some of those things happen if, in fact, that is even uh, going to be a serious consideration by TPS. So, um, but but it is it is it is absolutely clear that Ryan Walters has thrown down the gauntlet on this, and he's not going to back up an inch. And so um, these meetings and uh, these the the information and the data that needs to flow back and forth clearly is going to be important. And I think lawmakers, once again, we keep factoring them in because they are part of this equation in terms of the overall conversation uh, with respect to what's happening at the State Department of Education specifically, and then watching what the state board does uh, with respect to following the direction and the uh, uh, prerogatives of, uh, of the superintendent himself. So um, it, it's an ongoing controversy. I mean, and this is not the only school district we're talking about. This just seems to be the one in the crosshairs uh, and has been now for a number of months uh, with a, a lot of focused attention by uh, Ryan Walters. The state superintendent Ryan Walters is proposing new guidelines to tie accreditation to test scores. Under the proposal released at last week's Board of Education meeting, a district would face accreditation penalties if more than half of students perform below grade level in English or math or on state assessments. Neva, what needs to happen for Walters to implement these guidelines? Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, when you start talking about these guidelines and the impact or implications on school districts, I mean, you're talking not only the Tulsa Public Schools, the other ones that have been specifically mentioned are Oklahoma City Public Schools, Western Heights, Middale, Millwood. I mean, so a lot of folks uh, and a lot of districts uh, in the in the conversation I think that uh, Superintendent Walters has said that, you know, look, we're going to ask the legislature, members of the education community, uh, uh, district su superintendents, all of these folks for feedback on these proposed guidelines. And ultimately, it will be interesting to see what the legislature does, because they can disapprove guidelines uh, that uh, that the State Department uh, uh, puts forth. So it's not a it's not just a unilateral decision or process on the part of uh, the superintendent and his folks at the State Department of Education. It is something that has a lengthy timeline to it, uh, something that clearly um, if you start talking about uh, these kind of standardized tests and and upping the results in a very short time frame uh, whether that is possible um, and what uh, what that really will look like I mean I think uh, I, I think it's clear as one of the uh, uh, 
uh, folks said in the conversation that I read that uh, their belief was that this would dis- disproportionately penalize the urban districts, and those are the ones with the large special education programs, the kids on IEPs. I mean, and what does that mean? Do school districts start to incentivize or try to uh, urge these uh, uh, parents to maybe go some other direction, maybe a charter virtual school or something else, and get them out of the mix in their uh, in their numbers so that uh, they can up their test scores? I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, the, a lot of uh, unintended consequences that could be a result of this. And so it's a conversation everybody needs to be involved in. Uh, and we'll just have to see with interest uh, whether this link to trying to link text, test scores to accreditation is a real deal or not. Ryan. Maybe I think that that's right. The the but the conversation that you mentioned that that should be going on, I don't think is actually happening within the State Department of Education, uh, and certainly not with Ryan Walters. Uh, you know, the the idea of what happens next or the idea of unintended consequences, I think probably couldn't be further from his mind. I think that he wants to use words like accountability, which seems rich coming from a guy who uh, is you know far from being held accountable for his dereliction in his office so far. Um, and, and even by his own staff, you know, demonstrating you know, if, you know, just think if the legislature were to put requirements uh, on uh, uh, performance requirements on the state superintendent of education and tied his funding to that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you know, then then uh, we'd see a very different outcome because, you know, the, the legislature, I think, could hold the state superintendent accountable for his failures um, in his office. So, you know, hearing words like accountability coming out of Ryan Walter's mouth are, are just really rich. But, you know, on the back end of that, like you said, what happens whenever you tie these test scores to accreditation and you have schools that lose accreditation? Where is the state going to? step in and help what's the state's plan of action after that you know how are they going to assist these school districts and i think it becomes very difficult for them to think about how they're going to do that when the state department of education under ryan walter's leadership uh, have failed to apply for millions and millions of dollars of federal grants uh, we have we've left you know just a ton of money on the table that could actually come in and help school districts with this there's no plan there's nothing here other than pointing a finger saying accountability putting out a press release uh, and then moving down the road i i don't think that there's any conversation happening with ryan walters and a senior leadership team here uh, and it will be ultimately up to these local school districts and the legislature to try to come in and pick up the pieces should this plan go into uh, go into effect you know, it's interesting in these Oklahoma standardized tests, which are what they rate the students on, on four levels, it's below basic, basic, proficient, and advanced. When you look at that and you think about, we're talking about uh, proficiency in English language arts or and math. I mean, these are critical in the, ed- in the education of uh, Oklahoma's uh, children. And so it is a, it is a important, it's an important conversation but there have to be, as you say, Ryan, if there is a if there's a plan, then it needs to be the full plan of what happens when these districts uh, aren't successful, when they can't increase their scores by five percent or more uh, per year. And, and they r- run the risk of downgrading, having a downgraded accreditation or losing accreditation. So it's a very complex, uh, a very complex process and something that uh, is uh you know, I think I think the devil's in the details always, and it's going to be very difficult as they really delve into this to try to figure out a process that, in fact, can move forward and work at this juncture. 
Well, speaking about language proficiency, I don't think details is a language is a word that Ryan Walters is very proficient with. The leader of the state Senate unveils plans for a more transparent budget process. This comes after years of complaints on how le legislative leaders craft the budget behind closed doors and then release it with just a couple of weeks left in the session and no public input. So, Neva, what are some of the changes we can expect? Well, it's going to be interesting because the Senate's going to go um, an entirely different direction than what has normally taken place. I mean, based on what's being rolled out. I mean, as as we always talk about at the beginning of session, you have the governor's state of the state, the House and the Senate begin to work their budget numbers. Negotiations start fairly early back and forth between all of the parties. None of that will happen now with the uh, Senate plan because basically they're going to create a system where they have uh, appropriations chairs that will uh, go through uh, what will be very exhaustive budget hearings, not just a, what was described once as a check the box uh, budget hearing, but every Wednesday all day long, they will have meetings and they will uh, go back and forth developing budgets uh, of agency by agency, area by area, um, and do the give and take ultimately uh, the way that uh, Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat described it earlier this week. This will allow for much more transparency, much more of an inclusive atmosphere. The Democrats certainly um, uh, kind of came out very quickly and agreed with that and, and seemed to be very, uh, uh, very supportive of the kind of this change in the process. But it'll move through. Um, and as we get to spring break or Half, seven weeks into the session, um, then there will be this this full Senate budget that will be laid out. It will be voted on. Um, and then that's what they will put forward as, as kind of their negotiating piece in this entire budget process. And that will be fascinating because you, you've got this give and take. If they've got a, a pot of money and they start to slice and dice it, um, and then you have this situation when you're talking $12 billion and you're letting every idea and everything possible be vetted or considered, the complexity of that. And then you still have the um, uh, the AMB chair who um, some believe uh, part of this process will be that in his position, he'll have the uh, option to exempt bills from this process. Um, there's going to be a lot of internal, um, uh, it's going to be by everyone's admission, something that's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster. There's going to be some hiccups, I think was one of the descriptions. And whether the wheels come off or whether it's the greatest idea to come down the pike in recent memory in terms of budgeting, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Ryan. Well, I think pro temp treat is to be applauded for this effort. And Neva, as you said, maybe the wheels come off, maybe there are some hiccups in this process, but it is something that even if this isn't the process that we see five years from now, perhaps this influences what that process looks like five years from now. Uh, and I think that in terms of procedural legacy, I mean, we, we often think about, you know, what a legislator's, what market legislator or a particular legislative leader leaves on the Capitol. This could be an enduring mark that uh, the pro temp treat leaves behind. And, and one that I think is welcome. I mean, the idea that we could see a Senate budget seven weeks in, um, and we don't have this this uh, this kind of game. Uh, and I don't mean to you know say that in a pejorative sense, but it is kind of a game where uh, both chambers, the House and the Senate, often keep their cards close. Uh, they don't want to put their plan out first. Uh, you know, the governor doesn't want to 
uh, put their final plan out as as the session is is evolving out there first. Other, you know, they put out a budget at the beginning of the year during the state of the state typically. But um, you know, the idea that we've got you know some working numbers at the very uh, by the middle of session is pretty remarkable. And the idea that we're going to dedicate entire day an entire day a week to budget items uh, is quite remarkable. Uh, the, the most important thing, and everyone will say this: Republicans, Democrats. Uh, the most important thing that the legislature has to do every session is to pass a budget. Uh, if they don't do anything else, uh, they have to decide how uh, they are going to fund state government. That's that's their biggest policy decision. And you know, too often that decision is made by a handful of people, uh, and the critical details of it come down to maybe the the final few days of the legislative session. And you know that you know sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But to put all of the Senate members uh, and all of these uh, these these committee members in a position where, I mean, they're going to have to do a lot more homework. There's going to be a lot more work in these committees. But I think that you know, senators that have even Republicans that aren't in the upper echelons of leadership and haven't been included in these budget process talks until the very end uh, in past sessions, I think that they're going to welcome that. They, they want to be a part of that. They want to be able to go home and tell the folks that they represent that they had a role in crafting this year's budget, an actual role, not just some perfunctory thing where they cast a vote at the end of session on a deal that's already been struck. So I, I think that uh, making this kind of procedural change, uh, it, it takes some guts because you know it could be uh, it could be a, a rocky first year for it to be implemented. Uh, but ultimately, if this leads to something that over the next several years, both the Senate and perhaps even the House begin to adopt some of these committee changes, uh, you know, we could see a, a more uh, transparent uh, legislative process for, for all Oklahomans. You know, it will be interesting, though, when you think about the fact that the Senate is saying that they're going to go through this process in seven weeks, then they're going to come up with a single resolution, their budget, their budget resolution. It's going to be an up or down vote and uh, have the dollar amounts attached to it. And you've had, at the same time, the House going through a much different process with much more flexibility, potentially, in the, the negotiating as well as uh, the vehicles to bring House bills across to the Senate um, in, a, in a little bit different fashion. Ultimately, I think everyone expects that the JCAB process in the final weeks of the session will still be in place. It will still be the negotiating between leaders of the House, the Senate, and the governor uh, and his folks. And so um, there, it's a different process on the front end, but it doesn't appear to be a different process ultimately on the back end. And that's where the rub may be in terms of folks, even in the Senate, who have gone through what would be uh, deemed a more transparent and open process, but may have uh, uh, may have their uh, their bills, their desires kind of left in the dust and not part of this uh, resolution that they finally come up with. So it'll be a fascinating session to watch this component about the budgeting process and see how this really evolves. And to see how the House responds. You yeah. know, does the House does the House come up with you know some alteration to their budget process either before session? Uh, you know, maybe even during session, um, or or do they just stay the course? And uh, yeah, even if we find ourselves at you know JCAB at the end of the year, um, you know the the Senate you know could put themselves uh, in a position where you know the, at least they have a starting document, uh, you know some resolution 
assuming that the resolution passes, right? I mean, if, if what happens at seven weeks in, if you've got a budget resolution that doesn't pass the Senate, um, or, or you've got a weak budget, budget resolution without, with maybe a slim majority support, uh, walking into negotiations with the other chamber. Um, so there's, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot here that's still up in the air, but regardless, I, you know, I, I applaud, uh, pro temp treat for making an effort here to think about, you know, the, the kind of, you know, procedural legacy that he can leave behind from his tenure as leader in the Senate. Well, and according to him, I mean, this these changes have been in the works, he said, I think, uh, 18 to 24 months. So, I mean, it's not something that they just uh, appeared to have come up in very short order. But I think you're right. I mean, the back the political drop, backdrop, and I think the last thing to kind of inject into the conversation here is the fact that let's remember, as we've said repeatedly through this year, that you have uh, for the first time coming up a change in both the House and the Senate in leadership at the same time. So whether anyone wants to admit that among the legislators and those inside the the Capitol building that uh, are involved in the, the politics of all of this, it will be part of the equation too, because you have spirited um, uh, efforts being made by people that are out there wanting to be the next pro tem, wanting to be the next Speaker of the House. And uh, how all of this plays in the backroom negotiating is still part of the equation. And so, and we've not said much about the fact that the governor in this process appears to be uh, the one that is somewhat kind of sidelined, uh, it would appear. I mean, where uh, the lawmakers may be in the mood to uh, do what they want to do and just say, governor, take it or leave it. If you don't and you don't sign it, we'll, we'll uh, work to override the, uh, the your vetoes. So uh, it could be, there could be some real fireworks and drama in this session at the same time when lawmakers are going to have to, if they choose to file for re-election, are going to have to do that the first week in April. So um, it's it's a it's a very uh, it, it it it's going to be a very interesting 2024 uh, in the making. Uh, Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.